friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. about for us the core foundation of discipleship is beholding Jesus it is an encounter with the living God and that when that happens it begins what we would call this cycle of beholding um, which we behold him and it stirs in us fascination um, and passion and joy and delight that's our, our cycle of delight it's actually like it sends us into these things. And so uh, what we realize is like when you get revelation, you get beauty. And when you get beauty, you get fascination. And when you get fascination, it turns into love. And whatever you love, you actually delight in really naturally. And the things that you delight in, it actually leads to desire for more of the things that you delight in, which ends in, as Greg spoke, uh, uh, was it last week or yeah, last week about passion. It builds a fire in you to start that whole process over again. To actually spend your life beholding Jesus, coming to know him in spirit and in truth, in reality. And so um, this week was meant to be the hinge between the first section of this series and the, the latter section of this series. The first section is, is giving you the philosophy and, and the why of beholding. The last section is to be like, how? How do we behold? And we'll talk about beholding um, God through Jesus, through the word, by the Holy Spirit, through singing, in community. We'll be talking about kind of the, the how. But one of the keys that I, I felt like is, is uh, you have to actually build a container in your life to steward this kind of life. You have to actually build a lifestyle of beholding. Um, if not, you'll be like the parable, right, of the seeds. The seed gets sown and, and the, uh, either gets taken by the birds or the, the desires of the, of the flesh and the, all this stuff starts to come in, it gets taken. And then what you do is you actually live from like spiritual high to spiritual high. That's the story. It's like peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, rather than a consistent life of revelation, of beauty, of fascination, of love that just continues to grow and grow and grow until someday you meet him. So you're actually meant to build a container to, to steward. Whew, lost that. See those reflexes? Yeah, still got it. Um, so this is the idea of like wine and wineskins, right? If you get new wine, you don't pour it into old skins. You actually need new wineskins. And what happens in the church so many times is the Holy Spirit starts to pour out in places and regions and they never get past their old wineskins. They can never actually reform the church to contain this new practice, this new outpouring. And so what happens is it dissipates. It loses steam and it disappears. And so we want to do that. Our, our friend Corey Russell was here a couple of years ago when we introduced uh, Skyline to him. And he said these words that have rung in my ear since he said them. He said, I built a life to facilitate my thirst. I built a life to facilitate my thirst. And he said, my thirst was for the presence of Jesus. 
So I built a life to where I would consistently encounter the beauty and glory and majesty of Jesus over and over and over again. Um, So you can tell what someone's thirsty for by the life they've built. You can tell, you don't have to ask them. All you have to do is look at the life they've built and it will display what they're thirsty for. So it's hard because you can't lie. (laughs) You can lie with your mouth, but you can't lie with your life. Um, And this question has been haunting me this week. When my children grow up, what will they say was the main thing for our family? What will they say our family was about dot, dot, dot? And the haunting thing is they won't say what we said. They will say what we did. So I can say Jesus is the main thing, but if my life doesn't demonstrate it, my kids will grow up saying our life was about sports. Our life was about my dad's career. Our life was about leisure and travel and fun. Our life was about dot, dot, dot. Now, the good news for me is I grew up in a family that radically followed Jesus. So when I grew into an adult, I could, I could honestly say my family's life was about Jesus and his church. Of all the good and bad about that kind of pursuit, I got it. So if you, if you want to compare church baggage, let's have coffee, you know, because I got that too. But yet, there was no question in my family who we were living for. And when I wandered into a far and distant land, the thing that called me back was what I knew about who Jesus was and what the church was, and I knew I had a place. I knew I had a home. And I came back. So as I was thinking about this this week, um, I kept feeling like the pressure rise about how to preach a sermon that would cast a vision for a life of beholding, that would rally people to give their lives to this vision, to the rhythms of beholding we have here in our church. And it was like this thing, and I think pastors feel this pressure, like if I could just say it perfectly or be persuasive or compelling enough, people would reorient their lives around this beholding thing. And then you get to the point where you just almost give up because you say like, what, how am I going to do this? Um, and maybe that's not actually the way it was meant to be. And I was reminded of the scripture that um, I've hidden in my heart since the beginning of my walk with Jesus that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. And he said this, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. That's kind of a scary thing because you're like, if Paul pastored a church in, here, in Oklahoma City, it would be really small. Be the church of fear and weakness and trembling on the stage. My message and my preaching were not wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Listen to this. So that your faith might rest not on man's wisdom, but on God's power. If we're not careful, our life and our faith will rest on the wisdom of man and not on the power of God. This has been a core text for our church since we've had this move of the Holy Spirit. We're not here to convince you or convict you. That's the Holy Spirit's job. So rather than cast vision this morning and talk about how the culture has captured our imagination and our schedule and our money and how we extricate ourselves from it, I figured I would just share with you my why. If you ask me, Jonathan, why are you giving your life to this rhythm and life of beholding Jesus? Why does your staff pray and worship for an hour to two hours every day? 
Why do we give every Wednesday night to worship in prayer? Why do we give Mondays at noon to worship in prayer? Why is so much of this service dedicated to worship in prayer? I'm going to give you my why this morning. So I want you to just take a second. Would you just close your eyes? And I just want to pray for these words that I'm going to share with you this morning so that the Holy Spirit would speak to your heart. So Jesus, you are master and king and Lord, uh, not just in our heart, but over everything. And so I invite you today by your spirit to speak to our hearts. And you said that your Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So Holy Spirit, I invite you into this room today to do that work. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're, um, I'm just going to read, okay? So I need you to stay with me because I'm going to read a long uh, thing. Long, I mean. So this comes out of John 17, or actually the, the end of 16. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now father glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave them and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. Listen to this, friends. Jesus, this is the prayer he prayed for you. This is what he wants for you. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. Listen to that. Glory has come to Jesus through his followers. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that you may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may truly be sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and they in me and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. 
and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Catch that promise. I have made you known to them and I will continue to make you known. That promise didn't end with the disciples. It's true today. I want you to capture that in your heart. Jesus says, I will continue to make the Father known on the earth. Righteous Father. Righteous Father. I love that. When he finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I've never, have you ever caught that part of that verse before? Literally just in this moment, I just caught that. Jesus spoke the words, I am he, and they, the soldiers fell over. Again, he asked them, who is it that you want? And I guess they responded from their backs. <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave to me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple is known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him, still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, you are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, said, didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. 
Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If you were not a criminal, they replied, We would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying that I am a king. For this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it, it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in purple and went up to him again and again, saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Behold the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Listen to that. Jesus never claimed to be a good teacher or your buddy or just a prophet. His own claim was to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the school. Here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. With the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. 
Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. Later, knowing all that was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Therefore the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you, listen to this, so that you might believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was Jewish Passover day, preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen, lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as, as, well as the burial cloth, which had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went, in time, went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Isn't that interesting? The angels sat and guarded Jesus while he lay dead in the tomb. They never left him for one moment. From his birth to his death, God's presence followed Jesus every step of the way. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. He called her by name. She turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. She went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. Jesus then appears to his disciples 
And he does that. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Then he appears to Thomas and invites Thomas to feel his hands and his side, to actually put his finger in the wounds so that he would believe. Then Jesus, in Acts 1, instructs them, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And when Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Not a select few. Not the most righteous or holy ones, but every single person in that place was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus of Nazareth, Peter says, was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, signs, and wonders, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over by, uh, to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne, and that descendant would reign forever. It's Jesus. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decayed. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not send to heaven. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God has made this Jesus, both Lord and Messiah. Then they say, what should we do? This is the key question. Not just for the Jews in that day, but for the church in this day in America. What should we do? Peter says this, repent and be baptized. Every single one of you. (laughs) How? In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord will call. And on that day, about 3,000 people were added to their number. Friends, that's the gospel. I don't know when the last time was that you heard the entire gospel just read. 
out loud. That's the story. Not paraphrased, not put into cute quotes and stories with jokes interspersed, but just the truth read together. What should we do? Repent and be baptized. Revelation says this. This is 22.12. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Just to hear those words. Behold, I am coming soon. And listen to this. I have a reward with me. Friends, I want that reward. <laughs> I want that reward. <laughs> I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. How do you get into the city of God? You've got to wash your robes. Now you might think, oh, is that like I got to work to get, no, no, no. What do you wash them in? In the blood of the, you literally take your robes to Jesus and you go here. And he goes, in the blood and he gives it back to you and you walk in. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. So he says, come on. And we say, come on. <laughs> it's just like, yes, whoever's thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. But here's the problem with free gifts. We kind of get bored with free sometimes, I think. And the church in America seems bored with the free gift of Jesus. It's like we've heard it so much, it, it just kind of maybe washes off. And I wonder even, as I read the gospel of the kingdom out loud to you, was your heart burning for this Jesus, this man? who bled and died for you. I had more, but... So that's my why. That story changed my life. story of Jesus and his love and the cost he, pray, he paid for me changed my life. And ever since I came to know that Jesus in reality, my life has been aimed at knowing him, loving him, worshiping him, and giving my life to the thing he left on earth to steward all of it, which is his church, this family. And 
for me, I'm determined with my life to not allow sports or wealth or my children or influence or social justice work or politics or anything else to get in the way of that. Timothy, um, in, his, in the letter to Timothy, uh, Paul says this, command those who are rich in this present world, or you could just say the American church. So let's just sub that in. Command the American church not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So if it wasn't me sitting here and it was actually Jesus who burst into this room in glory and said, like, could you honestly say that you've taken hold of the life that is truly life? Like, like taken hold of it. Not just like, I got a finger on it. I'm there. Like, I'm going to heaven. Fire insurance. But taken hold of it. Now, let's be honest, that, that, verse in Timothy cut me because this week, friends, I got confronted by the Lord with a spirit of worldliness in my life which wrecked me. Not sin. Not sin. Nothing overt sin. Worldliness. The kind of worldliness that takes out entire families from being Christian after Christian after Christian after Christian to in one generation being lukewarm and the next generation denying Jesus. And we're so glad that many times we don't have overt sin in our life and yet the world and the flesh dominate. Our calendar, our money, our imagination. And I've just been praying, Lord, bring me to repentance. prayed it in the prayer room and I'm just going to say it here and this is this might halt the growth of our church which is fine but friends I don't want to live as a hypocrite to my children I don't want to tell them that the things I watch and listen to are okay for adults but not for them So much of my life that I justify, I'm like, oh, well, that's, yeah, I'm an adult. It's okay. It's fine. And yet, can I, can I ask you, would you sit down with your nine-year-old and watch Game of Thrones? Could you justify the incest and violence and nudity 
and darkness and magic and watch it with your child and tell them that you have another way to be other than the way their Sunday school teacher tells them? If you have a voice inside yourself right now justifying that, I want to tell you that is Satan trying to trip you up. Jesus never justifies the flesh. What does he say? Crucify the flesh. What are your enemies? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And it starts with worldliness. It gets into your flesh. And guess what? Then you end up in bed with the devil. And as for me, in my house, I'm repenting today of that. I, I want to repent of the devices and all the crap that I have let into my home. And be like, oh, that language, it's just language, it's no big deal. But if my kids said that language, boy, I'd take my belt off and fire them up. Why is it okay for daddy? when his friends get together to talk about that. Mm. I don't know if you guys know this, but um, Asbury Seminary right now has been in 96 continuous hours of revival. College students. <laughs> guys... Jesus is after Gen Z. I don't, I don't know if you know this, but he is coming for that generation. And I believe it's going to awaken the church. I want to repent that 96 hours of straight revival to me sounds like I don't think I could do it. My first thought is all the stuff I'd have to cancel. And Jesus hit me with a question this week. He said it. it if I made a deal with you and said I'd bring revival but your kids couldn't play sports, what would you say? Oof. This is just the real, friends. I just want to invite you back to reality. What I just read to you today, if that's true, it demands your life. Demands your life. Not just a 10% tithe, not just once a week on Sunday, not just a little Bible study here and there, but it demands allegiance in the deepest part of you to say no to everything else, to say yes to him. And it's been a long time since I've been there. So I want to take a moment. I just want you to close your eyes. Psalm 24 says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who can stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Can I just ask you, are your hands clean? Are your hands clean? What about your eyes? 
What about your ears? Sing the little song, Be Careful, Little Eyes, What You See. What you hear, what you say. Could you ascend right now in honesty? Could you ascend the hill of the Lord? Could you stand in the holy place? And this isn't about condemnation or judgment. This is about repentance. The way you get to that place is not through earning it, not through being good. It's literally by declaring you need him. Saying, I repent, Lord. I repent of that TV show. I repent of that inappropriate relationship at work. I've been flirting with somebody, Lord. I, I repent that I've received any joy from anyone that's not my spouse. I repent for the way I've pursued money and wealth to the detriment of my family or my relationships. I repent of my pride, which damages people constantly. I repent of my anger, which mostly gets expressed in my home toward those who are closest to me when I can no longer perform. Forgive me, Lord, for angry words towards my spouse my children so if you ask me right now what does the church in America need I say deep repentance work of revival are blowing. And as Peter said, it's for you and your children. This is for the household. This is for your parents. <laughs> Some of you in here, your parents are far away and you might just be your repentance away from them seeing what a life looks like fully alive for God. If religion could save people, America would be saved. not and things aren't getting better yeah. Jesus said, 
when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So right now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come with conviction in our hearts about sin, actual sin that needs to be confessed and repented of, forgiven and freed. I ask that you would convince us of righteousness in ways where we are not living in sin, but we're also not living righteously. Friends, this is a holy moment. I literally felt the Lord tell me in the prayer room this morning, this is a tipping point for our church. We either take the invitation and move forward with God into a spirit of revival, or we go backwards. And guess what? God loves us no matter what. It's not going to change the way he feels about us, but it will change our experience of him. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And we're going to sing about the cost that Jesus paid. For us to be holy. <laughs> for us to receive that from him. And I just want to be, man, I want Paul's like, live lives worthy of the calling of Christ. Live lives worthy of the sacrifice. So I want you to stand to your feet. And I just want you to know, if you have repentance work this morning, that's what altars are for. These are for repentance, to come and pray. So Jesus, we love you. Personally, Jesus, in front of all these people, I just want to repent of worldliness that has crept into my life. I want to repent of my self-justification that it's okay. For claiming freedom in areas, Jesus, that you didn't give me freedom. right now that you would forgive me of this. Yeah. Jesus, as for me and my house, we want to serve you and you alone. Yeah. So friends, I know the Holy Spirit is knocking inside of you right now. I doubt there is any single person here who has nothing to repent of. <laughs> has nothing to confess. So don't miss this moment. Allow 
yourself to feel it. Don't reject that feeling. I just want you to know, like, I felt, I literally felt such a wave of shame yesterday. And it was okay. Because I know Jesus doesn't give me shame. I knew where to take my shame, but that wave wrecked me in a way that I had to run to him. And when we fight it off, then we don't run to him. We, like, we shrug it off. Don't shrug it off. Yeah. I just want to invite you, if you've sensed that, will you come to the altar? Let's just allow his mercy and kindness to wash over us. Bring your robe this morning and dip it in the blood of the lamb. Say, wash me, Jesus. I want to enter those gates. I want to stand in the holy place. I want to ascend the hill. If you need courage, go grab a friend and be like, I can't do this alone. I need someone to go with me. There's power in confession. So yeah, Trent, will you lead us? Just come. Even now as I'm speaking, if you just feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, just come. Come right now. Get on your face in your pew if you don't want to come, but do something. Respond in this moment to the Holy Spirit.